Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. move games, but that's all right. I'll, I'll forgive you. <laughs> so good to be with you all today. My name is Taylor. I'm part of the teaching team here at Encounter. I haven't had the opportunity to say that in a little while. Um, and yeah, I just really want to welcome you all. I want to extend a warm welcome to online church as well. And I just want to encourage you guys particularly. We're so grateful to have you here. And today, as we talk about God's vision for human relationships and how relationship is such an integral part of how God has created us, I would encourage you to lean in. I would encourage you to reach out to either someone that you're in the room with or someone that you know, letting them know that you're watching because we are not created to do life alone. So it's my encouragement to you guys. Um, Just as I was worshipping there, I'm not going to jump into things straight away, but I've been feeling a real weight, a real heaviness um, to this message and I was just listening to God, listening to the Spirit about what He's doing in this moment and in this place. Um, And yeah, I just felt that, I don't know, for anyone who is carrying a burden in terms of a relationship or is hurting in that space today, God wants to offer you a message of His grace and His love. And, you know, as we lift up the name of Jesus, he is a king and a lord and he is mighty, but he's also, his his lordship is one of grace. And so I just want to invite you to posture yourselves to receive that today. But shall we stop? (laughs) Human relationships, big topic. We all have them, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ones that exhilarate, intoxicate, and make our hearts race. The ones that disappoint, disillusion, or devastate, leaving us breathless, wondering where it all went so wrong. We have the mainstays, the constant and steady, those relationships tested by time that nevertheless endure. They're the golden ones. And then we've got the irritants, those irritating relationships that if we're really honest, we'd rather kind of just avoid entirely those relationships our parents and grandparents might call character building. (laughs) Such is the multifaceted experience that we call being human around other humans. So Mike may have prefaced this already last week that this is likely to be a series where we do a deep dive into some big topics. So I'm not going to apologize. This is not going to be a short sermon but I hope it is a good one. (laughs) Um, And so if you're online, this might be your invitation to go get a cup of tea, go to the toilet, do what you gotta do. Um, (laughs) As for you guys, you are stuck here with me, so let's get into this. Um, So this is obviously a big and complex topic, and discussing it with some friends, I was asked, God's vision for which human relationships? Friendship, family, romantic relationships? To which I replied, oh, you know, like, just all of them. <laughs> so naturally, I thought I would begin by discussing what I've had a lot of recent experience in. Yeah, car trouble. <laughs> <laughs> So recently I was told that after living together in multiple states, 
and going on many a kayaking and camping adventure, it was time for my beloved 2003 Hyundai Getz and I to separate. In the middle of an intersection, it stalled, leading to the discovery that a leaking radiator had drained all of the coolant, leaving my engine running hot, or shall we say, not so hot. Since then, I have learned so much about cars. <laughs> like the fact that you need to shake the bottle of radiator stop leak before pouring it in your car to avoid having to shove it down there with a stick. Definitely didn't do that. Or how to source a new coolant reservoir from the wreckers at the last minute because you forgot to replace the little plastic lid and then just went for a little drive. <laughs> it's a curtain, all of this. And in my sermon preparations, the cars, now stick with me, cars are a lot like relationships. No, not as a means to an end for getting where you want to go. Jeez, guys. <laughs> no, rather, even the very best of both cars and relationships require regular maintenance to stay healthy. It is often through relationships and connections that we find ourselves in places we'd never dream of going alone. And yet, sadly, too many relationships, I mean, cars, end in unexpected breakdown because it took for something to go wrong for us to look under the hood. A good mechanic will be able to quickly diagnose the underlying issue by comparing the car's current state to the manufacturer's blueprint. Yet, when the wheels fall off of our relationships, when they need realignment, or even just a routine check-in, where do we turn? Is there a design, a blueprint for human relationships which can serve as our guide? So, as Mike said last week, this series is following a bit of a pattern where we talk about ideology, then theology, and then a bit of a pastoral, practical response. So, it's a lot here, so just gonna hit it straight off with our ideology. So, next slide, please. Here we go. Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. John Jack Rousseau. Rousseau was an 18th century philosopher. He wrote a book called The Social Contract. Uh, yep, up there. And his thinking uh, laid the seeds, laid the foundation for what we now see expressed in contemporary radical individualism. <clears throat> in Rousseau's thinking, the natural state of humans is not to be in relationship. In Rousseau's ideal world, Rousseau's Garden of Eden equivalent, shall we say, the ideal human condition consists of disconnected, atomistic individuals. And by atomistic, I mean like little atoms, just like floating around, not really having much to do with each other. Now, I could go into like all of the philosophy, but instead, I thought I would introduce you guys to Benny. <laughs> Benny, this is Benny. Benny is 32. Benny is married, he has a wife, two kids. He's an active member of his local council. He's involved in community events. He volunteers at his local park run and signs up to help out his kids' school whenever he has the opportunity. Benny is on a first-name basis with his local barista, and no, he's not Mike Wardrop. Um, <laughs> and he's also regularly involved in a local church, although it doesn't sound a lot different. Um, <laughs> um, the question here that Rousseau would challenge us to ask is, is Benny free? And this ideology that Rousseau is presenting would answer that question with a no. Because what Rousseau and the other philosophers that he's, his thinking is building upon 
are trying to do is to rethink civil society, to rethink our whole society from the ground up. So just like atoms, the most basic building block of human society is the disconnected, independent, autonomous individual. This existed before social institutions, so social institutions and groups were only created because those individuals wanted them to exist. And these individuals are naturally driven not by the good of others to benefit them, but by self-preservation. And so here we see in this ideology, relationships are not part of human nature as it existed originally. Instead, they are secondary, derivative, created by choice. And so what holds society together? What stops us all from just like killing each other? Well, that's where we bring in the social contract, something that people opt into and choose to participate in for the common good. But we see within this that relationships, if they're constructed, if they're created by choice, they can be recreated by choice. If they are opt-in, we can opt-out. And so life begins to look like our own personal Legoland, where we just build things and pull them apart and reconstruct them however we want. All right, so how are you tracking? Good. Yeah. Quick summary. So this is the teacher of me. Um, Summary of Rousseau's blueprint. You are, we are disconnected, autonomous individuals. Our deepest fulfillment will be found through breaking off the shackles of responsibility and obligation which society, family, and religious life impose on us. It's an imposition. We should exercise our freedom to choose or abdicate membership in these social institutions insofar as it benefits us. And so we see here there's a hierarchy of individual preferences and group interests, and individual preferences come first. You do not submit to the institution, however good or bad it may be, the institution must submit to you. And so, put simply, if you weren't following any of that, in this point of view, life is a no-lock-in contract, baby. <laughs> All right. Second one, theology. Now, in the wisdom of Julie Andrews, I thought, where should we begin? Well, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'd actually love if you guys could read with me from Genesis 1, verse 1. Hopefully you can see that. Yes, good, it's bigger up there. Um, in the beginning, in the beginning. Come on, read with me, guys. You can do this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? God. When did he do that? In the beginning. In the beginning. Yeah. Amazing. So, like, we're already, like, halfway to, like, challenging Rousseau's whole ideology. <laughs> because we see in the beginning, what was in the beginning? Right. Not an autonomous, disconnected individual. And who created all of this? Not an autonomous, disconnected individual. Anyway, so we also see within this ideology that God himself is not an autonomous, disconnected individual. Rather, God is a Trinitarian creator God. It's a big word, but it means Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible talks about this continually. This is a big part of the Christian tradition. Basically, it means that God has eternally existed within community, within himself for all of eternity. Not only that, the Bible tells us that God is love. So God is relationship, God is relationship, and God is love. So what does this God who is relationship say? He said, 
Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And for those who know the Genesis account, there's one describing word that keeps coming back and back and back. Can anyone tell me what it is? It was very good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. Amazing. You all pass. Um, (laughs) And then, however, we jump to Genesis 2, verse 18, and something changes. It's all been good, 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 very good. But now, finally, God actually tells us something is not good. What is not good? It is not good for the man, for the human to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. We'll go into a little bit more of what that means later. But we see in this search for a helper, for a partner, Adam looks all throughout the creation. And we find that for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the human to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of his ribs, closed up the place, and made the woman, paraphrasing him. Then, I like the NLT version, the man's like, at last, this one needs bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And in the Hebrew, I used to live with a housemaid who studied Hebrew. The woman, no, the man is Ish, and the woman is Isha. And it's just really cute. It's great. Um, <laughs> and it tells us, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they both become one flesh. And then it tells us that Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Fast forward to Genesis 3. How are you guys tracking? There's a lot of Bible, a lot of, a lot of everything. You're doing well. Proud of you all. Okay. So Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. This is the fruit they're not meant to eat. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and their wife, they hear God working in the garden in the cool of the day, and they're freaking out. They're like, oh my goodness, we're naked. This is so awkward. Oh my gosh. Okay. And they hide. And the Lord God calls to the man, where are you? Where are you? He answered, oh, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. But God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and I ate it. She totally talked to her. (laughs) And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the the snake, the snake deceived me and I I should talk to him. And so we see immediately we've gone from naked and unashamed to hiding shame and blame. What a roller coaster of three chapters. <laughs> we see in the Genesis account this blueprint that we were created for relationship with God. We were created for right relationship with creation. We were created for relationship with one another. And we were created to also have a right relationship within ourselves. But also, more than this, we were created in all of that to image, to reflect, to mirror this relational God who is himself love. And so his nature is part of ours. And yet, 
we've already encountered the tearing of the fabric of this relationship between God within ourselves, with others, and the rest of creation. And so summing up, there's a different blueprint here that we're encountering. In God's blueprint, you are a human being created in the image of a relational God who is love. You were created for relationship with God, creation, and others, and cannot fulfill your created purpose alone. God calls us into relationship with himself, creation, and others for a purpose, which may involve sacrificing personal freedom for the sake of kingdom fruitfulness. So we see two very contrasting visions here. In one point of view, the basic building blocks of the universe, humans, are, next slide, I think. That's the one, amazing. The next slide, Um, humans are disconnected, autonomous individuals, and God, who cares? Versus God, exists in a Trinitarian community of eternal, self-sacrificial love displayed most fully in Jesus. And humans are his beloved creatures created in his image in order to image and reflect this relational creator God. So we see on one hand, life is a no-lock-in contract, baby. And on the other, we are called into a covenant of love. And so... Pulling out of this, I've got three main points. (laughs) That was three, yes, good, all right. (laughs) Community, commission, and covenant. So, got a lot to get through, I'm just gonna keep moving. Community, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, often, typically, we will talk about this and use this verse in relation to marriage. And I do not wanna skip over that. The Bible holds a very high view of marriage. However, that is not the only fulfillment of God's very good. And it is not the only fulfillment of this sense that the human should not be alone. We see in the Genesis account that the Imago Dei, the image of God, comes before the command to be fruitful and multiply. Which means that your worth in God's eyes, no matter what life stage you are at, no matter what your age, no matter what your relationship status, your status as a divine image bearer is not dependent on any of that. It is not dependent on your relationship status. Besides, in heaven anyway, we're all going to be single. Like, Jesus says that. So, technically the single people are like getting in early. Uh, (laughs) Just getting like, yeah, we're preparing, it's great. Um, (laughs) And the big wedding feast that the Bible points us to is between the bride, which is the church, and the lamb, who is Jesus. And so all of our wedding feasts and celebrations and covenant relationships in marriage actually point forward to this ultimate one between Jesus and his beloved church. So we reflect him. Now I, thank you, (laughs) I am a nearly 26-year-old single woman living with my single mother. (laughs) Thank you. And (laughs) I have been single for most of my adult life. So I can tell you from experience, singleness and single life is not all a walk in the park. Like, let's be real about this. I can hype it up, but seriously, it has its challenges too. Um, And David Bennett who is an incredible theologian and thinker, speaks of the idolization of romantic love, marriage, and yes, even family life in his book, The War of Loves. This is in both our culture and also in the church. Now, David is a gay, celibate Christian, and so this, he has 
walked this journey in a unique and deeply personal way. But we add to this the statistics of divorce in Australia, which says that one in two marriages, that's like approximately 50% of marriages end in divorce. And then you add to that another countercultural group of those who, for whatever reason, and it is not because they are of lesser worth, lesser value, or lesser dignity in God's eyes, but for whatever reason, never marry. And so we see that it is not good for the human to be alone. And marriage is one avenue for community and relationship, but it is clearly not the only, and we need to recognize that, particularly in the light of all of this. And so, we, you know, I'm going to celebrate marriage. I'm going to celebrate family life. They are very good. The Bible tells us literally, like, black and white, very good. <laughs> and so the challenge for us single people is to celebrate, to rejoice with our married, engaged, pregnant, and parenting friends. I love you all. Um, and to pray for them and to love on them. I've been to so many weddings this year. It's been so fun. Um, but then also the challenge for you guys is to continue to include us to invite us to not only hang out as couples and families. And to do so not out of sympathy, because we're like the weird aunt or uncle that you feel like you have to include, like, come on, guys. But like, in recognition that we are part of the body. We are part of the body of Christ, but more than that, like, single people are awesome. Like, we have a lot to offer. We've got so much spare time, it's great. more than that, like we all need each other. And even married people need a village, they need a community. In her book, incredible book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield talks about the power that community and radical hospitality played in her own journey towards faith in Jesus and also ongoing discipleship. And an encounter, we seek to continue to mirror this radical hospitality through our family dinners, which is one of the reasons why we place such a high priority on that. However, our need for relationship, our need for community runs so much deeper than this. It runs so much deeper than rocking up to someone's house once a fortnight to, for dinner. We are inherently relational beings. Genesis tells us this, and we are made for more than just physical proximity with other humans. We're made for more than just the church surface where you came, but only really superficially talked to anyone else in the room, or maybe only the people that you already knew. We're made for so much more than the awkward family dinner where you moved heaven and earth to get everyone in the same room, but then everyone just kind of sits on their phones or they doesn't even really know how to talk to each other. Like, we are made for so much more than this. The Bible continually calls us to more. In the New Testament, there's this incredible word, this Greek word, koinonia, which talks about fellowship. It's the word for fellowship, and it speaks of a partnership in the spirit, a deep spirit-to-spirit -spirit relationship. And both Rosaria Butterfield and David Bennett speak to the power and importance of spiritual friendships in the spiritual life. Now, these friendships exist on the basis of more than you just happen to have in common with somebody. Way more than that. They actually exist on the basis of spiritual practices. They exist on the basis of checking in with one another, being like, hey, what's God doing in your life? Tell me about this. And then journeying and walking alongside one another, encouraging, praying for each other on that journey. And so I want to speak to you guys on the topic of loneliness. If that is something that you experience or are experiencing, that yearning for more, you are normal. 
there's not something wrong with you. In fact, you are more than normal. You are experiencing a call back to creation, the call of the relational God. But I would also love to challenge you, if, challenge you if you're experiencing loneliness, or even if you aren't, if you don't have at least one person in your life that you would call a close spiritual friend, seek that out. Particularly seek that out with someone that you're not married, engaged to, or dating, like another person. Because you will find that your life is deepened and transformed, and your relationship with God is deepened and transformed so much through that, so much. All right, next one, commission. God calls us into relationship for a purpose. Genesis 1:28, God gives the humans a command. He says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, John Mark Cromer in his book, Garden City, refers to this as the cultural mandate. This is the moment where the humans are invited into their vocation of co-creating with God, of co-working with him in the garden to continue to cultivate, steward, and flourish the world and creation in the garden and beyond. The man and the woman are not called to just sit around and stare into each other's pretty eyes. (laughs) Just like you don't buy a car and then just sit in it. Like, who does that? (laughs) Rather, both of these things are given for a purpose, just as are meaningful friendships and just as are workplace partnerships. In the kingdom, we are always called to steward what we have been given as God's co-creators. The kingdom is all about multiplication. And so everything exists for a purpose beyond itself, including our relationships. Now, in Genesis 2, verse 18, it says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the word helper here has been translated in some, and talked about in some interesting ways and some really unhelpful ways. The word helper, this is referring to the woman, um, has been talked about as like a secretary, as like an assistant, as like a nominated childbearer. And like, I think the Bible holds up like a really high view of motherhood, so I don't wanna like disrespect that at all. But I really, really disagree with an interpretation of this, which talks, which kind of makes the man the main character and the woman just kind of like his passive sidekick, like seriously. Um, actually, the Hebrew word for helper is ezer. Ezer. You gotta say that actually when you remember this. Ezer. Yeah, very good. It's not Ezer, it's Ezer. Um, and um, this word is actually used throughout the Old Testament in the Psalms and beyond to talk about God. God as Israel's helper. So, in the same way that God is Israel's secretary, assistant, and childbearer, sidekick. The woman is too. Um, so is there is when Israel calls upon God in times of trouble, in times when they need help, in times of battle, in times of hardship, in times of trial. Is there implies that there is work to be done. There is a battle to be fought. And so in the same way, is there can be used with the man and the woman in the battle, the work of raising a family can be used between the man and the woman in terms of stewarding our careers for God's glory and the good of others. It can be used to refer to the battle of sharing the gospel. 
And so John Mark Comer in his Loveology, <laughs> I found this so funny when I read it, um, makes this statement, particularly he's counseling women, but he says, don't marry a man without a gardening project. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it, it equally applies to women. Um, but what he's saying here is you don't want to marry someone, you don't want to end up with someone whose whole sense of self-worth and purpose in life is tied up in you and tied up in your relationship. As romantic as our culture may make all of that sound, you really don't want that. Because what that results in is the crushing expectations that are placed on you and your relationship. That's how idolatry works. Instead, we see in the Genesis account, sorry, actually, I'm gonna backtrack, throughout the Bible, not just in the Genesis account, all throughout the Bible, God calls us to seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and all will be added. Seek first the kingdom. Focus yourself on kingdom work and seek out kingdom-centered partnerships with other co-creators who can work with you for the good of others and to the glory of God, be that a romantic relationship, a friendship, or a workplace partnership. Genesis celebrates fruitful relationships in all realms of life. This is part of God's vision for humanity. It is not, it is true that romantic and family relationships are significant, but they are by far not the only ones. All right, covenant, how are we going? Amazing. All right, bring me a higher love. Bring me a higher love. Oh, (laughs) bring me a higher love. Where's that higher love I keep thinking of? It's from the prophet Whitney Whitney Houston. (laughs) And she points us to a hunger, an absence, a longing within humanity that the social contract cannot fulfill. The great theologian Augustine puts it this way, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And so we see in the social contract, this language of rights and responsibilities, what I owe and what you owe, but the Genesis account calls us to more, so much more. And yet in this kind of game of like, you know those memes of like how it started versus how it's going? It's kind of like how it reminds me it's not going well. Started with naked and unashamed, how it's going. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. How it's going? Where are you, my beloved creatures and creation and humans? How's it going? The woman, the woman you put me, it's her fault. Or the snake, blame it on like, an animal that can't speak, like, (laughs) great one. Uh, Although technically this one could, but you know. Um, (laughs) With this brokenness we have found has been echoing within human relationships throughout the generations ever since. Asking this question, is there a higher love? Is there something that transcends, transcends our factions, transcends our rivalries, transcends our shame and fear and blame? And beneath all of this, we still have the echo of those words that were spoken right at the beginning. It was very good. If it's all about our rights and responsibilities, we have well and truly failed to hold up our end. But where our ears became deaf to the Creator's cry, it was very good. God's never did. 
And so we see throughout scripture a call to more. Where the world offers a contract, God calls us into a covenant. Where the contract operates on a logic of equivalence, tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, like a little kid splitting the cookie, making sure she doesn't get one more crumb than I do. The covenant operates on the terms of God's grace. Chris Watkins describes this, I love this, as the logic of superabundance. How cool is that? This is the logic of, he says, the how much more of the Pauline epistles, how much more of God's goodness, how much more of God's grace, how much more does he long to pour out upon his people? The logic of going beyond what is expected, of walking the extra mile, of turning the other cheek. This is the basis on which Jesus can call us to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. Why? So that we might be children of our Father in heaven. No, not so that we might be, because we are children of our Father in heaven. Because he already did. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. The covenant is a thicker, far more multifaceted concept than the legal notion of the contract. Signed not in ink, Signed not in rights and responsibilities, but signed in Jesus' blood. Matthew 26, verse 27. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for for many for the forgiveness of sins. We see in this covenant a return to the call of Genesis, of a renewed humanity partnering together with God to renew his creation. But in addition to this, we see a call into renewed community and relationship with one another. Now, this is a hard call. It's not always easy. Because when I look at my friend, I'm like, my friend is a great human. I like my friend. I'm not so mad about having to spend eternity with this human being. But when I look at my enemy, if it's all up to me, if I'm completely honest, I don't really want to spend eternity with them. Now, just to be clear, I don't have a particular person in mind when I'm saying that, but (laughs) it's also true that the people we love have the greatest capacity to hurt us, and so spend enough time around people, at least momentarily, the friend will for at least a minute become the enemy because people hurt people. (laughs) And shock horror, some of them are even Christians. (gasps) So the question is, can we look at the other? Can we look at our enemy? And when we do, I mean, the question is, what grounds could we possibly have to love them? What grounds could we possibly have to forgive? It doesn't make sense in our human logic, but that's where Jesus says, look at me, look at me. Second Corinthians five tells us that it is Christ's love that compels us. Because of Christ's love, we now no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. We once may have regarded Christ in this way, but we do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So the bad news here 
It is good news, but there's a bad news, which is that if the person that you are struggling in relationship with is a brother or sister in Christ, when people disappoint us, when people break our hearts, we can run to him. We can run to him crying out, Abba, Daddy. Because he always meets us with this declaration, the same declaration that he spoke over Jesus, his son. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are my beloved child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is our inheritance. At the same time, with those who challenge us, like, Abba, Daddy, I really don't like that. You see that other kid over there? I really don't like him. He's like, on the plane, on the playground over there, he's, we're not friends. And Abba is just like, come over here, come sit on my knee. You know what, can I tell you something? I really love you. Can I tell you something else? He is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. She is my daughter, whom I love. With whom I am well pleased. Or. If this person does not have a relationship with God, he or she is my child whom I love, with whom I long to have a relationship. And so as we receive this adoption, as we receive this message of our forgiveness and adoption into God's family, this message of our inheritance, God slowly, gradually, as we are willing to let him, opens the eyes of our hearts to see the other as God sees. We love as he first loved us. Imagine this. Imagine Christians secure in their identity in Christ. Christians secure in their knowledge of the Father's love. Secure in their identity as the beloved, loving their enemies, forgiving their persecutors, seeking reconciliation and peace in broken relationships pouring out love and kindness and grace in abundance in a world that's broken and divided and hurting, in a world that is built on the contract of you scratch my back, then I'll scratch yours, in a world where cancel culture tells us to cancel anyone that we disagree with. What a witness. What a witness and what an opportunity we are given to be children of God. And yet, this isn't easy. It requires humility. It requires vulnerability. It requires that we first receive. Receive the incredible miracle of God's grace poured out through the love of Christ on the cross. A love that never leaves. A love which is the mirror, the pattern for all other relationships which only really echo imperfectly or reflect this. And so we see, as we look for a blueprint, that the love of God through Christ is the blueprint. So I invite the band to come up. Um, And we receive this through the Holy Spirit. So as I began, I spoke about how it's a good chance that there's a heaviness, there's a weightiness around this topic. And if that is something that you are carrying within you, if this has stirred up something within you, I'd like to invite you to come. Come to the altar. Come to receive God's grace. Come to where the Father's arms are open to receive you. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. 
To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.